All right, we're in Romans chapter 8. We'll look at verses 29 and 30. I used to make fun of people who went this slow through Romans. It's so cute. I actually taught through Romans one chapter at a time years ago, so those studies still exist somewhere. But uh, we're not in any hurry on Wednesday night, uh, and we want to look at these two verses, Romans 8, 29 and 30. One Bible commentator said that the library at his theological seminary contained 10,000 books on the single subject of the doctrine of predestination. After centuries of debate, there is no lack of disagreement, even division regarding predestination and the other major subject of these verses, God's foreknowledge. That's not to say we can disregard the words or the subjects or the doctrines. It is to say that I will not solve this tonight or ever in my lifetime, and neither will you, and neither will anyone else. What we can do is adopt a perspective on predestination and foreknowledge that is biblical without becoming so dogmatic that we arrive at awful conclusions about God. Now, the place to start talking about verse 29 and 30 is in verse 28 where we read, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Last week, if you were here, we took the first part of that verse. We saw that it was a a sweet pillow to lay our weary heads on. And we said that the last part of that verse uh, is really explained for us in verses 29 and 30. If you are a believer, you are the called according to his purpose. And verses 29 and 30 are the explanation of that statement. They tell us what it means to be the called and what is God's purpose for those who are so called. And so in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we're going to hold our comments on God's foreknowledge and predestination for just a moment and see, first of all, what is God's purpose for the believer? Because it's pretty clear and it's pretty exciting. God's purpose is that every believer, he says, be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. I remind you that this entire chapter has as its theme the sanctification of the believer. It's not about how you get saved. Paul talked about how you get saved in the earlier chapters. This chapter, and indeed chapters 6, 7, and 8, they're all about living out the Christian life day by day, or what we call sanctification. They are about the time between your getting saved and your seeing Jesus face to face. We sometimes describe it as three uh, elements of salvation. There's initial salvation, then there's your sanctification, And then there's the final glorification. What is simply but wonderfully being taught by the words, be conformed to the image of his son, is that God will continually perform his work of making you and I more like Jesus Christ until the day you are either resurrected or raptured and his work is complete. He who has begun this work in you will do what? He will perform it. He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The technical term here, firstborn among many brothers, applies to Jesus Christ's new position after his resurrection uh, from the dead. 
he became the first of all those who would be raised from the dead never to die again. It's first in priority, uh, first of a new order of people. The many brethren are all those who believe in him. All those who are saved as the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus has eternal priority, yet he is not ashamed to call us, those who follow him, his brothers and sisters. And so God is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to raise in a new glorified physical body fit for eternity. And uh, many will follow. In fact, all believers will follow after him in resurrected or raptured glorified bodies. This is what the Apostle John understood when he wrote, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so God is working in your life right now, if you're a believer, to make you more like Jesus Christ. You're being changed from glory to glory, the Bible says. As we look into the mirror of God's word and you know, we are becoming more like Christ. Now that we know God's purpose for believers, we're in a better position to discuss foreknowledge and predestination. And so let's talk about predestination first. Predestined means, uh, among other things, to determine something beforehand. Read the words again and you'll see exactly what was determined beforehand. You are predestined or it was be determined beforehand that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. It's another way of saying that what God has begun, he will perform and complete. There's no thought here of you being predestined to salvation. No, you are predestined with regard to your sanctification. God has determined beforehand that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will then become like him. So for me, at least, biblical predestination has nothing to do with your initial salvation. It's about your sanctification. Once you are saved, then you are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this word predestined occurs two other times in the New Testament. Let's look at them real quick. Verses will probably be up on the screen for you. Um, Ephesians 1, 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We're just snatching that verse uh, out of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, the guys out of Dallas Theological Seminary, good guys, they say this about verse 5. They say the emphasis of predestination is more on the what than the who, in that the believer's predetermined destiny is to be adopted as full-fledged sons of God through Jesus Christ, the agent of the adoption. So again, it, an argument could be made that we're talking about believers and what a believer is predestined to. I become a believer and I'm predestined to be adopted, fully adopted as a son. We saw what that meant a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 8. It means that I will have all the full privileges of uh, a full-blown son of God uh, I, I have many of those now. I have the positional privileges now, but I certainly don't have my inheritance now, do I? Uh, that's awaiting me when the Lord comes back. Besides, you could say that the us of, of verse 5, 
who has who's been predestined? Well, the answer in verse one is the saints who are in Ephesus. And so Paul is saying the saints who are in Ephesus have been predestined to be adopted or to be conformed into the image of Christ. The other occurrence of predestination in the New Testament, it's a few verses later in Ephesians in verse 11. It says in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, this seems to be describing God's purpose of conforming believers into the image of his son. So what does whom he foreknew mean? What is God's foreknowledge? Well, let's hang on a little while longer. Uh, Let's look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, we've just seen that whom he predestined refers to God's certain continual work in the lives of believers. If you are a believer, it's because you were called. When you responded to that call, you were justified, and one day you will be glorified. Now, if you're listening carefully, you notice that I added the phrase, one day you will be, to the idea of being glorified. It says in the verse, he, you were called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, why did I have to add those words? Because that's our perspective on salvation. You get saved at a point in time, you go through your life walking with the Lord, and one day, from our point of view in the future, what will happen? You'll either die and be resurrected, or you'll be raptured and you'll be finally glorified. We always think in a linear manner because we're bound by time and space. Uh, And and so we're thinking of things that way. I'll use myself as an example. I heard the gospel in 1979. It was a call to salvation. I responded at that time and I was immediately justified, as we've seen in the book of Romans. God declared me righteous based on my believing in him. I was saved. I was born again. Those are other words that we like to use to describe that experience. That began the process of sanctification, which will continue until in the future I will be glorified when I am resurrected or raptured. Notice, however, the verse doesn't say these he will glorify. It declares that God has already glorified us. How is that possible? Well, it's not only possible, it's true because God is not restricted by time. And I don't pretend to understand this. I'm not going to get real deep into this because I would be making things up that I don't understand. But I think all of us have an understanding that God is not bound to linear time. Uh, God uh, is not on the same kind of time frame that we are. He's outside of time. God's foreknowledge is from our perspective a knowledge of what will happen in the future. Normally, if somebody says, well, God has foreknowledge, I think, oh, God knows what's going to happen in the future. And though that's true, from God's perspective, there is no future. He knows all things at once simultaneously. He sees my entire life all at once. And this is where I can't, I can't, I don't really understand this. I know, but we all know that it has to be true. God is not waiting for the future to happen. He's not... uh, you know, moving pieces on the chessboard to make sure things happen a certain way. Uh, From God's perspective, things have already happened. Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Does John see the future? He absolutely sees the future because from God's perspective, it's already happened. Now, again, like I said, you know, this is this gets very Star Trekian, you know, or, or weird, you know, all these futuristic timeline loopings. I mean, there are people who do seem to understand time. Einstein had some understanding of this. As soon as I figured out that, you know, what Einstein was saying is that if I travel faster than the speed of life, time, light, time will go backwards. I said, yeah, I'm not going to study quantum physics. Because that makes no sense to me. Now, when I see it portrayed in the Planet of the Apes, the original movies, then I do understand that. Because I think that's just cool, you know, the way that worked out. And, uh, but, you know, so I'm not pretending to give you some kind of quantum physics answer. I just, we already know this is true. God is not bound by time. He, he, he doesn't just see the future. He, he's in the future, as it were, and he sees my whole life simultaneously in a way that I can't possibly comprehend as a human being. But it's why he can say that I've been called, justified, and glorified. Not just because he sees the finished work, but because the work is finished from his perspective. From all eternity, God saw me getting saved. He knew in advance whether I would receive or reject Jesus Christ. He knew my choice before I made it. And he sees me as already glorified, even though I am still, from my perspective, in the process of sanctification. Does that mean that my choice to receive Jesus Christ in 1979 was determined ahead of time? Does that mean I had no free will in the matter? Not at all. God's foreknowledge does not cause me to receive or to reject Jesus Christ. He has not, by foreknowledge, already chosen for me. Does that mean that my choice to receive Jesus Christ in 1979 nullifies God's sovereignty? No, he is sovereign and I am free to choose. We like Dr. Norman Geisler. He, you know, obviously uh, some of these brilliant guys, we, we don't agree with everything that everybody says. I don't agree with everything I say. But, uh, you know, sometimes I get home and I disagree with him. I say, gee, what did you say? That was stupid. But anyway, Norman Geisler, he's a good guy, smart guy. Really smart guy. He's got an excellent book that I recommend called Chosen But Free. He does a great job showing that God's foreknowledge of my actions does not mean God causes me to do anything. Nor does it mean that he lacks or loses sovereignty. He doesn't cease to be God if I have free actions. One argument is that God can remain sovereign and ordain that my free choice is the means by which I receive or reject Jesus Christ. So in other words, in his sovereignty, he says, I'm going to ordain free choice. So people say, well, you can't have both. God can't be sovereign and man be free at the same time because I don't understand how that works. But at least you could make the logical argument that what if God made it that way? What if God said, I'm going to, in my sovereignty remain sovereign and allow a free choice to be made and ordain that and in my foreknowledge work all of that out. And so that's what Geisler does. He does a good job of that. Now remember, here's why I really want you to remember this is kind of a different approach than I've taken before. I said I would not resolve this issue tonight. I haven't resolved it. What I've done is given you a perspective on God's foreknowledge and on your predestination that is biblical that does not dogmatically lead you to any awful conclusions about the nature of God. Now, that's the second time I've used this word awful uh, in connection with God. What do I mean? Well, there are those who believe that the Bible teaches you are predestined to salvation. 
R.C. Sproul, another smart guy, he articulates what's called the Reformed view of predestination like this. Here's what he says. He says that the Reformed view asserts that the ultimate decision for salvation rests with God, not with man. Teaches that from all eternity, God has chosen to intervene in the lives of some people and bring them to saving faith. And he has chosen not to do that for other people. From all eternity, without any prior view of our human behavior, God has chosen some unto election and others unto reprobation. The ultimate destiny of the individual is decided by God before that individual is even born and without depending ultimately upon any human choice. Now, the word that might have caught your attention was the word some. God chose to save some, but not others and not all. He could have chosen more, but he didn't. In fact, he has chosen some, they say, to reprobation, which is a really nice way of saying hell. Uh, And so basically this view of predestination says in eternity past, God, who is sovereign, elected or chose certain individuals from the pleasure of his will and out of the grace of his heart to salvation. They will definitely get saved. And he decided to pass over to not choose certain other individuals and nothing they can do or choose will ever get them salvation. They are reprobated to hell. God could have chose them, but he chose not to choose them. uh, And that's just the way it is. That's how they work out predestination. Now, this teaching is sometimes called double predestination. Uh, And while some who believe God predestines you to be saved, say he does not predestine anyone to be lost. Uh, But that's really not an option because Sproul goes on to say, and by the way, R.C. Sproul is one of the geniuses of Reformation theology today. He's a really smart guy. He says this, he says, if there is such a thing as predestination at all, and if that predestination does not include all people, then we must not shrink from the necessary inference that there are two sides to predestination. And so Sproul very honestly says, God has predestined a certain group of people to be saved. He did that in eternity past before anyone was born or there was any thought of any decision or or any choosing on our part. And he also actively chose to not do that for others, knowing that they would be reprobated to hell and suffer eternally. Now, a lot of people believe predestination is to salvation and that it is double. And they have many intelligent-sounding arguments to defend their position, claiming it to be the one true grace message of the Bible with regard to salvation. Let me put this in an illustration. I came across this in a book called Whosoever Will by a couple of guys, edited really by a couple of guys, David Allen and Stephen Lemke. I also highly recommend it. It's a um, Baptist conference that is put on. I don't know, started recently, but it's every year uh, to talk about these kinds of issues uh, from an, what we would call an evangelical position. And uh, the book, uh, Whosoever Will, I think you get the idea of what they're getting at, that the gospel is a call to whosoever will believe. Uh, and they take a decidedly non-reformed approach to this subject. And so here's their illustration. Like all illustrations, it's not perfect, but I think it makes a point. And so, uh, I forget what chapter this is in, but here, here, here it goes. Uh, 
Imagine a fireman who goes into a burning orphanage to save some young children because they are unable to escape by themselves and they can only be saved if he rescues them. Only he can save them because he has an asbestos suit. He comes back in a few minutes bringing out three of the 30 children. But rather than going back in to save more children, the fireman goes over to the news media and talks about how praiseworthy he is for saving those three children. Indeed, saving the three children was a good, heroic deed. But the pressing question on everyone's mind is, what about the other 27 children? Since he had the means to rescue the children, and indeed, he's the only one who could save the children since they cannot save themselves, do we view the firemen as morally praiseworthy? I suggest we do not. In fact, probably he would be charged with depraved indifference. If he had the means to help them, but he would not. If we do not find that praiseworthy in a human being, why would we find it praiseworthy in God? Now, if the Bible clearly and unequivocally taught that God acts like that fireman with regard to the human race, then we would have to believe it. Absolutely. If that, was the, if that was what the Bible taught, clearly and unequivocally, there were no other arguments, there were no other brilliant men who brought arguments against that position, there were no alternatives, then we would believe it, because it's the Word of God. But godly men, scholarly men, intelligent men, disagree with the Reformed view of predestination, not because they haven't studied the Bible, or because they don't know the original languages, of the Bible or because they just don't like the implications of the doctrine, but because they don't see it unequivocally taught in the Bible. They see a, a different approach to predestination and to foreknowledge. Now, you can believe that God is essentially a malicious fireman, but why would you want to, since there are scholarly, accurate, intelligent alternatives that are biblical? And this is what I meant when I said awful conclusions about God. I can believe the worst of him, that he's awful for predestinating people to hell whom he could have chosen. I can act like that is praiseworthy somehow since God was under no obligation to save anyone. But why would I want to believe such a thing if I don't have to? I don't have to, and so I don't and I won't. Uh, I wish I could say problem solved, debate over, but that's not going to happen. My purpose tonight is to give you enough from Scripture to show that God is not a fireman who could have saved all, but chose to only save some and then said it was to His glory. His salvation, we read in the Bible, is available to whosoever will believe. The Bible says He is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And I choose to believe that He is the fireman who died for every lost soul. Uh, and so... Um, People are going to have contrary opinions. That's fine. Uh, hopefully we can all do the just get along thing. And uh, one of the problems that I have with this doctrine, I want to get a little, I'll have a little personal moment now if you don't mind. Uh, I, I think I've been very fair tonight in the sense that, you know, I haven't called anybody a heretic or, you know, I haven't taken a dogmatic position myself. I'm just saying there are other ways of looking at these doctrines and I'm not the smartest guy, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, you know, but there are smart guys, there's a whole lineage of smart guys, um, 
our smart guy maybe is smarter than their smart guy. Who knows? But anyway, there, there are guys that, that really study this and, and all. Uh, and, and so, uh, but occasion, you know, what, what seems to happen is people who get involved with the, this other view of predestination, what we call the reform view, they can't hang with that. that they're not interested in thinking there might be another way of looking at that. Uh, and and if you don't believe what they believe, you might not believe what the Bible teaches at all. Uh, and it's it's uh, you know I mean look at a different doctrine. I, I, you know I look at we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We believe that Jesus coming is pre-tribulational, uh, you know, for the church and uh, all of that. And um, you know we know people who are mid-trib, post-trib, all you know, no-trib, you know. Upside down trib, who knows? You know, we get along with all those people uh, and stuff. But when you get into this area, it seems like what happens is Christians discover this doctrine for the first time. And then all of a sudden, that's all they want to talk about. Uh, and, and you can't coexist with them. I want to coexist with them. I really do. And there's a few. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, people in our congregation that are reformed or Calvinist or whatever you want to say. And that's fine. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And we all, we all get on. But uh, a lot of people, they just won't let it go. Uh, and they want to convince you that this is the only way uh, to understand the Bible. Uh, and so maybe that will never happen to you. But, uh, you know, I've been in many arguments and many debates. And, you know, I'm, uh, I've seen lots of churches kind of split over this and lots of believers split. I've seen marriages split up over this. Um, I'm remembering one guy years ago uh, got saved here at the fellowship, an evangelist, shared Christ with everybody. I mean, you know, just super sharing of Christ all the time. And then he got hooked up with a guy who got him going on this Reformed doctrine of predestination. And then the only thing he really ever wanted to share was the Reformed doctrine of predestination with Christians. Quit talking to non-believers about Jesus. And he started talking to believers about this particular doctrine. And it just, it was sad. I mean, I found it very sad. Uh, I sat down with him and I said, you know, you can believe whatever you want. You just can't teach that here because we don't believe it and it, it created some problems, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, I've had pastors who've uh, gotten into this sit down and tell me, uh, you know, that if I really studied the Bible, that this is the conclusion I would come to. Now, it doesn't offend me that people would say to me, if you really studied the Bible, I, I don't claim to be a scholar. I didn't go to seminary. I don't know the original languages, uh, you know, so uh, I think I'm studying the Bible uh, my point tonight is that there are some guys who really have studied the Bible. They're not all idiots like me, you know. I mean, some of these guys would have you to believe that this is what everybody has always believed except for the modern-day idiots, you know. And, and now you need to get out of the idiot mode and back into what Christians have always believed. And that's just not true. And so when, I, when I've surveyed these doctrines, at some point I realized, hey, I'm not going to resolve this. I'm not going to write book number 10,001 that's going to be the final answer, uh, you know. And, and, and so what I've, the approach I've taken is that you can believe that, that's fine, we love you, you're a Christian, we're Christians, but if I don't have to believe that, if I'm not compelled to believe that God passed over 
by his choice certain individuals and they can never be saved, then I'm not going to believe that. And you don't believe it either by just reading the Bible until somebody starts to move you in that direction and you start reinterpreting certain things. Uh, you know, and, but hey, that's their prerogative. I can see you know, where they get that. I, I, you know, I, I don't understand why they want to do that. But anyway, so that's, that's what we're about. So predestination, uh, to me, it is not to salvation at all. It is to sanctification. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it. And God's foreknowledge, I don't know what it is about God's foreknowledge. I don't know that if he, you know, if he saw my choice or... or Geisler says we are knowingly predetermined and predeterminately known. And I don't know what that means, but I think it makes sense in a logical construct. And so, I mean, I don't know what God sees when he sees all of time simultaneously. I, I know that it... I don't have any problem with thinking that my free choices do not undermine his sovereignty if that's the way he's constructed things. So anyway, these are big subjects. They're important subjects. Uh, I just don't want anybody to be tripped up or led astray. Uh, I don't want people to move from an evangelical position into some kind of a position that is less than evangelical. I don't want people to quit talking to non-believers about Jesus and only talk to believers about Reformation doctrines. I just think it's counterproductive, uh, divisive, and all of that. So we're here to get along with everybody and and to love everybody and to hear what they have to say uh, and then to disagree with them agreeably when we have to. Is that that good? It's good for me. It works for me. And uh, think of the firemen. And, uh, you know, as, as I said, not a perfect illustration, but pretty darn close. All right.